All right, let's try again. Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keynes. Our why is simple, to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning for everybody, regardless of role or rank, to be willing to listen and learn. I'm joined as ever by my pal, Alan Dunstan. Thank you, Lewis. I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into understanding how leaders with an infinite mindset translate this across to their teams. We want to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or in any courses, real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And as ever, um, we're learning and we record live as well. So I'm sure there'll be a few mistakes as we go through. Um, we'd love your feedback. So please do get in touch with us. We fully believe in what we're doing. We want to get better and your feedback really counts. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube. Alan and I are both on Twitter and also at theinfinitelearners.com. So as ever, please listen, learn, and share with colleagues and friends. Let's get stuck in and introduce today's guest. Thanks, Lewis. And get your pens and papers ready. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom coming your way today. Uh, Jean-Marie Hussey has been active in gymnastics since 1990, first as an athlete and then transitioning to a coach. She has coached abroad to include gymnastics programs in the Philippines and Mozambique. And she's currently a national team coach in good standing with USA Gymnastics and coaching a successful team in Virginia, USA. Welcome on to the, sh to the show, Jean, and uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, please. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, my journey is, like many, it's the very long way around. I started gym at a small town YMCA. Um, it was a very kid-friendly program. It was only a few days a week. I think hour-wise, we maybe did nine hours total. It wasn't a super competitive program. I ended up stopping after trying a few other more competitive gyms. Um, some were a little less kid-friendly, I think is the best way to say it, but I had some health issues. And so at that point, we decided the best thing for me to do was to stop gymnastics. And I think I was about 15 when I walked back into the Y for a tumbling class for our cheerleading squad. And my old coach was like, hey, do you want to coach with me? And I've been coaching since I was 15 years old. And it's probably the most consistent thing in my life is being involved with the sport. Um, I started as a junior coach. I worked my way up. I was coaching team and taking kids to competition. I worked through university while I was in Florida. Uh, made the odd decision of getting married at 19 and moved to Okinawa, Japan and was there for a few years and not coaching, but helping to set up a program there for them. And then relocated to North Carolina. And I stayed in the same place for 11 years, which was kind of impressive being a military spouse to be in one location. And I worked at a gym in North Carolina. And I think my time there shaped me as a coach and really drove home the lessons of wanting to be a better person and wanting to be mindful that the athletes in front of me were human beings. They were children. They were somebody's daughter or son, and that it was really, really important to remain mindful of those lessons and not start to push the competitive aspect too fast or too hard, but to remain mindful of these kids and that they were a whole person and to really take more of a holistic approach to how I was coaching them. Um, and from there, I went back to university to finalize my degree. I finally finished in a sports and recreation management degree. It seemed to be at the time the best way to benefit me as a coach because I had a lot of um, sports psychology background with that degree, but also for the future ownership of a gym. I think most gymnastics coaches at the end of the day, that's what they really want. They want to create their own space that fully follows their ideals and their ethics that they want to apply to the sport. And so that seemed like the best path forward for me. And my husband left the military and joined the State Department. So then I spent two years in Manila in the Philippines working with an international school's gymnastics program, but also with national team members and working kind of as a hybrid, which was very long hours. But it was great to see all aspects, aspects of it and being able to do 
sports in a school where it was very much the ethos of the whole child and focusing on what was best for the child. And then also being in a very highly competitive situation, looking at national competitions, international competitions, and how to kind of bridge that gap between them. And then from Manila, we moved on to Mozambique. Um, I simply served in a volunteer capacity because we don't have a bilateral agreement with Mozambique. So I was only allowed to volunteer. And it was kind of interesting to go from a national training center that had all of the equipment to a very small setting that really only had a few pieces of equipment. Um, the equipment was quite old. And while it was still nationally funded, it just, that wasn't the focus in Mozambique. They have so many other problems that they're dealing with as a country. They're wanting to ensure they have enough food, enough water, medical systems, things like that, that sport is truly there for fun. It's there just to keep the kids active, to give them something to do. And while they do compete internationally in uh, region five, which is the Southern African nations, it's not the same type of program that's going to lead them to Commonwealth Games, things like that in gymnastics. And then from Maputo, Mozambique, I've now moved to just outside Washington, DC. I'm in Virginia. I'm at a local club here. I actually guest coached at a few clubs trying to figure out where the best fit for me was, what the best decision was for me as a coach for my family, but also where I felt that I was the most needed and where I felt that my style of coaching would be embraced and that I could actually help create change and create this movement forwards in gymnastics where you can still win, but you are truly looking at the whole child and what's good for their overall well-being. So that yes, I guess it. And that's quite, story for the moment. <laughs> it's quite quite a journey, Jean, and, and fa fantastic to hear about gymnastics being in so many different contexts. And throughout that, you mentioned two or three times uh, holistic, um, whole child, and, and really trying to focus on on a, on a child's well-being and, and and how they are as a person, not just how successful they are as a gymnast. And I, and I think this question's got to be asked, having watched the Netflix series Athlete A recently. What, what, what are your thoughts on what, what you saw in that? I, I know that you've watched it. Um, can, you, can you share with us what your thoughts were on that and, and what, what you think caused the problems that we saw and the, the issues that are tackled on there? Absolutely. Um, I have a lot of very strong opinions regarding Athlete A. And I think we need to look at it in its most broad context. And that is there is a culture within sport where winning means everything. And in that type of culture, people start to relax on their moral judgment, their ethical judgments, and they start to stop viewing these children as children or even as athletes, but they view them as commodities. And when we move into that type of thinking, it is very easy for abuse to begin and for people to stop recognizing it, to stop recognizing that they've created an environment where abuse can be going on. Um, Larry Nasser, what he did is evil. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. But the fact that he was able to abuse over 500 women and that two major institutions, Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics, it was happening at both locations they had been briefed on it and no one took action is absolutely appalling. But I think for me as a coach, it comes back to the small club, the smaller environment, how, what you set up in your day-to-day -day training with your athletes, that somewhat dictates whether or not that athlete thinks it's appropriate for someone to demean them or talk down to them to emotionally abuse them, to mentally abuse them, to physically or sexually abuse them. And I think as individual coaches, we have to start to look at how we are engaging with our athletes in our training, how we talk to them, um, how we're correcting them, even how we compliment them. All of that can take place 
in a way that holistically you see that whole child, that you become aware of where they are emotionally, you know, have they had a bad day at school, things like that. Finding a way to make them feel safe enough to communicate with you. And in doing so, you help weed out the abusers in a club. If a child is not left and alone with an adult who's not their parent, there's not an opportunity for sexual abuse in sport. So, and I so think that's, go ahead. So, so, sorry, Jean. So from your point of view, you feel this is a culture issue. It, it, it started at a small club level and, and people have turned too many blind eyes to it for too long because they've, if I've listened to you right, they've, they've prioritized winning over looking after the child and, and, and creating a safe environment for them. How does that happen or, or conversely, what can we do as, as educators and sports coaches to stop that from happening? I think it comes down to listening and, and watching behaviors in sport. Um, you know, there's all these pearls of wisdom that were always passed down that I remember being told as a young coach, you know, you have to break an athlete down to build them up. Well, that's abuse. Breaking wow. an athlete down, you are breaking them down emotionally, mentally. You're taking away who they are and trying to build them into this robot that you can control. Um, there are so many things like that that I remember being taught through high school and even within kind of not my university studies program, but within university sport that you don't question your coach. When I say jump, you say how high, that you don't ask questions, you don't need to understand, you only need to do what I tell you. And all of that starts to build on an athlete, on a child, and to the point that they don't question why. They don't question whether or not inserting a finger without a glove to adjust a hip or a back is a bad thing. They just, just, they take it as that's what it's supposed to be. They stop understanding that they have worth as a person. And so if the coach was yelling at me and I wasn't getting it and he hit me, I deserved it. I should have been hit because I didn't make the, the, the correction. You know, the coach was so mad at me that he spit on me. That's okay. That's normal. I deserved it. We start to normalize this abuse and it really can't happen. And it starts in sport. I mean, this is not just gymnastics. It happens in swimming. It happens in diving. It happens in football. We have to step back and look at the slippery slope and just adjust. We have to adjust how we're communicating but we also have to be willing to step in and say, this is not okay. This is not how we do things. This is not how we're going to interact with children. And we have to give these kids a voice. My biggest push has been, if you don't understand, please ask me questions. I will never be mad at you for asking me a question. And trying to give my athletes ownership of, I, I see the drill. I don't understand how this drill applies to my skill or I hear what you're telling me to do in the air. I don't know where I am, so I can't possibly make the correction. I can't feel it. And let these kids have the opportunity to self-advocate for them and have this ability to have ownership. I think that's another big part that gets lost in sport is the athletes don't always have the feeling of ownership of what they're doing or ownership of their sport. They're just pawns that we're kind of placing where we want them. And it all okay. comes back to having self-worth. Okay. I, I think the self-worth thing is really powerful. I, one question I have with regards to gymnastics, and, and, and from what you said there, it, it sounds like that this is something that's quite deep-rooted. Um, obviously, you're talking more specifically about gymnastics, but I think you've recognized there that it isn't just a gymnastics-specific problem. How, how do you change that culture within gymnastics? Gymnastics being such a sport that is all about performance, is all about levels, is all about developing children through those levels. And, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head with saying it's all about winning and performance, which maybe drives some of these decisions and these very, very poor decisions that clubs and coaches make. But how do we get to a stage where we recognize that gymnastics is never going to be particularly recreational for an adult? There is no end game of, of maybe going and playing gymnastics with your friends in your mid-20s and going for a drink after like you maybe can do with netball or badminton or basketball or football. 
how do we we recognize that but still allow recreation and, and still create a space where children can express themselves in a way that that you're obviously doing as a coach how, how does that become something that is available at gymnastics club, at gymnastics clubs everywhere i think Due to the Larry Nasser scandal, the abuse, athlete A coming out, I think now is the time that it will be much easier for the majority of facilities to change their culture, to recognize what they're doing wrong, to have the hard conversations. Um, and I do believe a big part of that comes down to it's not just talking to the athletes, but talking to the parents as well and creating this pyramid of communication between you know the coaches the students the parents and ensuring that everyone is on the same page moving forward and holding each other accountable um on top of that i know many clubs prior to all of this coming out that actually made the decision to no longer do competitive gymnastics at all or they would only do competitive through the compulsory levels which are the lower levels and that they were not interested in even touching high level gymnastics I think that comes down to owners making the best decision for them. I truly believe you can do high level gymnastics, that you can have college scholarship athletes, that you can have nationally competitive athletes and still not be an abusive facility and still have a holistic approach. And there are clubs out there in the United States right now that are doing that and they're still successful. And I think it comes down to, at one point, coaches were very, very private. Like they would hold everything very close to their chest. This is what I do. And they didn't want to share. And as a whole, that has changed, you know, especially with social media and whatnot. There's a gymnastics coaching group that has like 50,000 members in it right now or more that share drills. There are high level national team coaches who have world championship team members and Olympians right now that are showing their trainings. They create videos. This is what we're doing in our gym. And you're hearing the coaches talk, you're hearing what they're doing, but you're also seeing it. And you're seeing that these kids are kids, that they're not being abused and they're still successful. I think it comes down to there's proof. There's proof that you can be child friendly and still win there's proof out there now and it's it's thankfully to social media which i'm against so many times but in this instance it's fantastic because it's giving people the access to it you're not necessarily having to purchase or pay for anything it's free it's out there and people have the opportunity to adapt and i think we also need to look at forgiveness young coaches you coach the way you were coached and in the u.s we didn't really have a university system that created coaches it was very much a you just walked in i was the gymnast here's your team and what many employers looked at is what level of a gymnast were you and that's kind of how they place people there wasn't a are they good with children do they understand biomechanics do they understand physics none of that existed it was oh well she was a level 10 or she was an elite she's more than capable of running this program and that like, has actually changed the the, the the quote you just mentioned there i really like that one that you, you coached the way that you were coached what needs to change what what advice would you give to younger coaches coming through that you know maybe have been those high level gymnasts that that um want to go on to coaching and, and want to do something positive to support young people moving forward what would be the best advice that you could give those guys i think for me it's just never stop learning listening watching it if you have reached a point where you think you know everything you're done you're dead in the water you have to approach it with the idea, and I mean, this is, this is really why I get up each morning. It's a new day. It's a new mistake. It's a new lesson to be made. Um, you have to be willing to continuously adapt. And I think for young coaches, the best thing I could say is find a great mentor. And it doesn't even have to be somebody in gymnastics. Many of my mentors in my development weren't gymnastics coaches because of being a military spouse. I had access to some great military leaders and to have conversations with them um, and finding ways to apply that to my athletes 
in a way, not to make them subservient or soldiers, but to get them to want to do the action, to get them to want it. I think another thing for young coaches to remember is you cannot want it more than the athletes. When you want it more than they do, that is when you are prone to emotional outbursts. That's when you're prone to, why can't you do this right? Why aren't you doing what I tell you? You, you lose that ability to coach holistically because it's purely emotional. And I think that's the biggest thing is, and I do that every day. I mean, I had a practice two days ago that I was getting frustrated and then I had to take a deep breath and remember, I can't want it more than they do. Today, we're just not going to get it. Yeah, I, I, that resonates a lot with me as a, having two kids that I've coached, <laughs> trying to take the emotion away from it. It's hard, Gene, isn't it? It's really hard. Um, I just want to take it back a little bit there and, and look at, my Gracie being involved in, uh, say, one of your gym programs, what would it look like for her then? What are your core values and how would then they move forward with what Gracie would feel in, in a session? Absolutely. Um, I actually, when I came into Virginia, I took over a level six team. So I had 10 athletes and we sat down and we discussed on one training, like why core values mattered. And we talked about some options for core values, but I actually let the athletes choose. And their core values they chose for this previous year and that we're going to keep are actually core values that are very near and dear to my heart. And they are grit, respect, and self-discipline. And I'm gonna start with respect. And actually I had this as a core value at BSM. Respect is a two-way street. It means that the coaches respect the athletes, the athletes respect the coaches, but also that the athletes respect themselves, that they have enough respect in themselves to, to recognize when they're having an off day, if they're tired, if they miss lunch, you know, to respect their bodies and recognize that maybe they're not optimally fueled for success that day and that it's okay to step back. But also to respect themselves enough to know, did I truly try my best or was I just going through the motions? Um, the next one we had was grit. Grit is, to me, it's not an attractive word. It's not a pretty word that people necessarily want to put on a poster, but grit is the embodiment of so many skills that I want my athletes to learn in life. It's perseverance. If you fall and you get back up, will you get back up? And what do you do when you get back up? Grit is that ability to keep driving forwards, to overcome adversity, to see that goal at the end and keep driving to that goal. They did a study with West Point graduates and they were asking them, you know, what do you feel is the most productive life skill to, to, for future success? And overwhelmingly they chose grit. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to go. Um, my Athletes actually added it to their end of the practice cheer that they do every day. And they, they do a little clap dance. I, I call it patty cake. It's ridiculous, but it makes them very, very happy. They have to do it. We cannot possibly leave until it's done. And then they say something like CG4L, which is Cardinal Gymnastics for Life. And then it's CG4G, Cardinal Gymnastics for Grit. And they have absolutely adopted that and embodied it and kept it with them. And then our third core value is self-discipline. And really what we talk about with self-discipline is what are you doing when no one is watching? Are you doing the right thing because it's the right thing? Because you understand that it's going to lead you down the right path. And that's really my big thing. I don't, I don't judge an athlete's buy-in based on what they're doing when I'm standing next to them. I know that they've truly bought into our culture and our core values when I know they're doing the right thing on the other side of the building, when I know that they're doing the right thing as soon as they walk in the door. And that's really one of the things that we've been pushing because it's hard. It's hard to be a pre-adolescent adolescent athlete. There's already so many other things going on in their lives. And so for us, we really tried to focus on core values that 
would help them outside of gymnastics, that would assist them through life, that will make them high functioning adults that are going to be a positive force in the world. And that's really always been my goal. I mean, I would yeah. love to create Olympians, but at the end of the day, I'm okay if I create hundreds of athletes that move on into their lives as parents, teachers, you know, employers, whatever it is, but that they're still embodying those core values. I'd argue you've done more than all right if you've, if you've managed to get hundreds of children through your club who, who go on and, and show those values in life. So, you know, well done to you. I, I love the, the, the suggestion of the self-respect and the discipline, self-discipline, wasn't it? Away from the lights and, and, and away from where people are watching. There's a, a really cool um, Buddhist quote I read the other day, actually, called, uh, it, it said, the, the way you do anything is the way that you do everything. Um, and, and I really like that idea of having some pride in whatever it is that you do, however small it is, do it right and do it correctly. Now, on that note, what, what should parents be looking for the coaches to be doing and, and, and how should parents be looking for their children to interact when they're at a good gym club, when they're at a gym club where they know their child will be safe and they're at a gym club that is following the procedures that they should and, and looking to really develop those transferable skills into adulthood like you, you so eloquently talked about just then? I think it comes down to our parents allowed in the building. I mean, as a kid growing up outside of the YMCA, parents weren't allowed in the gymnastics facility. They weren't there. There weren't windows. There was no observation deck. Like they were out. And I remember one of the clubs I went to for a while, they would lock the door. Practice started at 4 p.m. And if you weren't in the door, it was locked. You just didn't go in. And I think that should have been a very big warning sign. Now, since Larry Nasser, with the creation of safe sports, um, facilities should be open to parents. I know it's been difficult with COVID. For us, our, our current policy is wear a mask if you come in, but we can't stop parents from entering the facility. They need to know what their children are doing. But I think that matters. And I think as a parent, if you feel that it's a hostile environment when you walk in, that should be your first warning sign that that may not be the right place for you. That may not be the right place for your child. I think, you know, kids can have off days. As a parent of two kids who like sport, I try not to ask them, like, how did practice go today? I ask things more like, what are you proud of today? You know, or did you have any personal struggles today? But my children's answers to those two questions will give me the information I need to know. Are they in a safe environment? Are they being pushed a little too hard? Um, I think there's very obvious things, like if your child jumps in the car and they're an emotional disaster, that may not be the right setting for them. Or if they're telling you things like, coach is always mad at me, coach is always angry, coach is always you know, upset with me. Or coaches, he just ignores me. He pretends I'm not there. I think those are times that as a parent, you need to have a conversation and you need to find out what's going on in the facility. I mean, I'll have athletes who are having a really bad day who I just give space and I don't give them major corrections, but I still acknowledge that they exist. I still acknowledge them as people, but I also recognize that they just had an hour fight with their mom or they failed a test at school and they're a little preoccupied. So instead of getting on their case, I give them a safer drill to do, or I back things off. But if this is a continuous, you know, coach doesn't like me, coach isn't talking to me, I think that's, you really need to look at what's going on with your child and are they in the right environment. And I also am a firm believer as a parent, trust your gut. I was in a gym and we had an abusive coach and the parents complained, but they didn't take their kids out. And I, as a coach, and I was the women's program director, basically went in and said, I'm going to quit. This person is emotionally and mentally abusive. And now I find out she's hit a child. Like, no, this has to stop. And I think that was probably the hardest time in my coaching career, because then I was given this group and it was having to deal with athlete PTSD that I wasn't overly knowledgeable in. It was dealing with the fact that they would shake. Um, I'm not a firm believer in yelling at girls anyway. I feel like they shut down. If I really am trying to drive a point home, I pull them closer to me to talk. 
But even in talking, if I had to raise my voice because a child was a little farther and couldn't hear me, I had kids who would nearly pee themselves. That's how frightened they were. And trying to rebuild these kids into kids and giving them back their sense of self. And I, you know, that was the big thing is I, I honestly looked at that group of parents and I was like, why didn't you leave? Well, we've been here since they were little. This is like their home. Well, this home was not safe. It was abusive. They didn't need to be here. And I mean, it, it was rectified and it was dealt with. And that specific coach is not coaching gymnastics, period, anymore. They're done. But it's. I think you have to question those things. And as a parent, if you're going to a coach and you're asking these questions and that coach is being overly defensive or argumentative or hostile, then you have to recognize that's probably what your child is dealing with too. And it just may not be the best situation. Yeah, you talk there about abusive coaches and, and when they don't buy into your core values and everything you're about, how do you then deal with those people? How do you get buy-in or... How do, you, how do you get them out of your program? What do you do there to, to make sure it's going down the direction you want? So I have only had one parent not buy in. And it took me two years to get her on board. And I think by the end of it, I had finally got her to buy into our culture. And unfortunately, I had to leave. Um, I don't think it's hard to buy into a culture that respects children. I do not believe that it's hard to buy into a culture that is teaching children and adolescents and young women to develop grit and respect and self-discipline. I fully recognize that there are parents that are only focused on winning. And I've had honest conversations and it's if you only want to win, if you are willing to subject your child to abuse, then no, this is not where you need to be. But if you're focused on your child growing up in learning life lessons and learning that victory comes with hard work, but also that victory is not the end all be all, then this is where you should be. But I, I strongly believe that comes with communication and for coaches, to not have any communication with parents, you can't have buy-in. Now, I don't, I don't think it's fair that within a club, coaches circumvent other coaches to talk to parents. I think that that's part of the problem. I think it's important that everyone be on the same page, that everyone be focused on the same thing. And while yes, they may apply it a little bit differently, at the end of the day, it should be very much united. I've been in clubs where I had a parent who was being very vocal and not wanting what we were doing because you know the last coach they won more with, but the last coach was abusing them. And I've had parents step in. I haven't had to address it. I had the parents step in and say, don't you remember your child crying every practice? Don't you remember your child crying, going to competition and throwing up because they were so nervous? That's not what we want for our kids. So to me, if your core values are where they're supposed to be, buy-in is actually really easy. Yeah. Just a question on that, Jean. You've mentioned a few times that you've been in and around these kind of incidents that have happened and parents have really wanted their children to stay for one reason or another or wanted their children to be around, you know, whether it's emotional or psychological, physical abuse, whatever it is. Why? Why, why would a parent want their child to stay at a place like that? Is it that winning is so important to, to that parent and to that child, or, or is it something different? I think it, it comes down to money. And let me explain, because again, I'm a parent with kids in sport. There are many, many times that I've been told in talking to a parent who's coming from a club with a kid who had been amused, you know, but we'd spent so much money and they told us we would get a college scholarship or we're going to make national, you know, development team or we were going to go tops and hopes. And then it comes up, but we've spent so much money. Wow. And I think that's the problem. I am a firm believer that if I've signed my child up for something that they are going to finish the year. 
accept it. I don't, I think that negates that monetary contract. Um, yes, I want my children to learn that coaches can be hard on them, that they can push them further. There's a difference between pushing a, ch a child further to reach their potential and abuse. Where, is, where is that line? Where is that line, Gina? Of, I think of, it varies. Too far? I think it's hard to pinpoint per child. And I think that there is a gray area that is, can be very, very hard to navigate. But that's where that communication comes back in. And it's a three-way communication. Parent and coach may fully agree that this child needs to be pushed farther. That child may not agree. And I think you have to be very careful at that point. Is the child, how is the child taking it? Are they taking it as in they want more from me or are they taking it as a, they're mad at me? And I think that's the line. If, it, if the child is internalizing that they're a disappointment, that they're a failure, that people are mad at them, then we're starting to cross that line. And I've had kids be really honest with me, like I'll get on them about something and I can watch the body language. So then I'll bring them over and we'll talk about it and I'll tell them like, hey, I saw your face fell. Tell me what you're thinking. And we have a relationship, they will tell me. And they'll tell me, you know, I'm really disappointed in myself because I know why you got on me. I could have done more. Cool. Tomorrow's a new day. We'll try again. Or I've had them say, I'm really upset. I feel like all you're doing is yelling at me. Well, that kid's not getting anything constructive from what I'm doing. So then it turns into, if there's nothing constructive happening, is it abuse? Is it pushing too far? And I think we have to be mindful of that. What one child can take, another child can't. And I think we have to study their body language and their nonverbal cues. And I think we also need to look at the fact that one off day is not gonna negate their career. You know, give, cutting them slack on one day is not gonna stop all of the hard work beforehand. Pushing them harder on one day, depending on the circumstance could, it could lead to a catastrophic injury. It could lead to them just finally giving up and walking out. It could lead to them taking an action of self-harm. And I think that's where as coaches and as educators, we have this tightrope that we're on and it is hard to balance. And that's when I think that's when you need to walk away and talk to somebody else. As a coach, if I feel like I'm hitting this brick wall that I'm pushing and pushing and pushing and it's just not going anywhere, I come over and I talk to another coach and okay, this is what I'm dealing with. What do you see? Do you want to talk to the athlete? Can you help me figure out what's happening? You know, and I've also created a culture though where the other girls will come over and they'll tell me, like, I get that you want to push Susie Q to get this. You don't know what happened to her today at school. You have to lay off. And again, that creates this, it's because of the culture of communication. I don't have those issues as often. So the children, will, the children will start to police themselves a little. Yes, or they'll stand up for them. I mean, I've had issues where I've got somebody who's really tired and we're talking, oh, I'm fine. I'm just having an off day. And I've had a teammate walk over and be like, you need to know that a boy told her she was fat and she hasn't eaten since yesterday kind of thing. You know, and they're not trying to be tattletales, but they're also trying to ensure that their teammates are safe. But if you've created a culture where that communication can't happen, where kids are afraid to speak, then you don't know what's going on. And that's when you can push a kid too far. And I think, again, what are we pushing them for? You know, dreams are fantastic. Goals are fantastic. It can't be my dream and it can't be my goal. It has to be the athletes. So we do goal books. We spend, we have a 15 minute snack break every day. And um, for the girls who train more hours, we have two of them to ensure that they're, they're being fueled. We do goal books in that snack break and we set goals and we set a big goal and then we break them up um, and it could be drills and they set timelines. It is not fair to me 
to push up their timelines. It's not fair to me to force their goals. They all have a very clear understanding of what they're required to do this year. They're setting their own goals, their own timelines for when they're going to achieve them based on a certain deadline. And our deadline is usually a month out from competition. Some of them have hit all of their goals in two weeks because they felt really good about it. They've pushed farther. A couple of them were struggling with their meeting their goals. And so they met with me and they're like, help me break this down to where I feel like I'm accomplishing, I'm achieving what I need. And we did that. And within two days, they were right back on track. But again, that, that comes back to the athlete having ownership. I feel like potential is a dangerous word. You can have all the potential in the world. That doesn't mean you're going to meet that potential. You know, I've had athletes walk in the gym and I'm like, they have the potential to be an Olympian. Many of them aren't even in gymnastics anymore. Potential is great, but that's not where it gets you to where you want to go. It's the hard work and it's the dedication. And so I've had kids who've walked in and coaches have been like, you don't want to coach that kid. She has zero potential. That kid had the heart and the desire and the dedication to work through it, to make it to level 10 to make it to where they wanted to go. And I think sometimes we get stuck looking at these like little parameters. In gymnastics, it used to be, you know, height, the length of their femur, the length of their arms. You wanted this perfect ratio because that's was gonna be an Olympian. It doesn't mean anything. I think if anything, aside from the abuse, if you look at the USA Gymnastics national team, who's going to world who's going to the Olympics, they don't fit those perfect body types. They had the heart. And unfortunately, they're survivors of terrible abuse, but they also had ownership of their goals and they kept going. And many of them have continued in the sport. And I think that's, a, it, it's a valuable life lesson for smaller clubs. It's a life lesson for, schools and other sports to look at what is more important, the potential or the work, I will always choose the work. It's really interesting that, that that goes back to what you were talking about earlier about, you know, coaches wanting it for the athlete and, and maybe in some respects you touched there upon parents chasing a dream that they want to, to chase and, and not necessarily what their child wants to chase. Do you think that that is, is maybe a reason for this, what you call maybe a, a push towards potential that, that isn't possible or, or isn't achievable? Yeah, I think a lot of times we look at the end result and we stop thinking about the why. Um, I think in education, especially within like the international schools, think with IB programs, things like that, we spend a lot of time on our why as individuals, as educators, as a school. But that doesn't always exist in the private sector, like in business and things. And I think it's really important that people understand their why. They understand the reasoning behind everything they do. And in gymnastics clubs specifically, many clubs don't have a known culture. It just exists. They've never thought about that. They've never thought about the why. They've never thought about the core values. And so as parents coming into a facility like that, they don't really have a why either. So what they're focused on is for the Olympics, because those are the two main end goals for the pathways. That's where it goes. And I think we need to remind our parents, it's okay to be in sport because it's fun. It's okay to be in competitive sport because of the life lessons that they're learning. And those life lessons also include failure. You cannot win everything. You're gonna fall down. And it's teaching the children to get back up. It's teaching them that they absolutely gave 110%. They did their very best. They still did not win. And that is a lesson. That's a lesson that they're gonna learn as adults in career paths. And I think we have to do a better job of looking at the whole person. And that includes the parents. 
You know, if I have a parent who's really pushy on the drive to win, that's a conversation. But why are you so pushy on the drive to win? Oh, okay, gymnastics is very expensive and you're worried about university in the future. And if you could just get Susie Q to a college scholarship, then you don't have to worry about that. And then I think it comes down to really honest conversations on the percentages. There are not that many college scholarships for gymnastics for full rides. There are less than 1% go to an international competition in the United States. I mean, gymnastics is absolutely massive in the US and it's recognizing statistically the chances of this are very, very low. As a parent, are you still willing to move forward in this because the why for the child is it's fun and there's life lessons, or are you so focused on that end goal? And I've looked at parents, honestly, if that's all you care about is this university scholarship, this may not be the right sport to do it with because they could do track and have a much better opportunity for a scholarship. They could play another sport and have a much better chance. Fencing, my, both of my boys want to be fencers now because it changes with every move. And so in the argument for why my younger son should go to a private fencing club and have more hours and all of this, he started pulling all of the statistics for fencing scholarships for university. And I was like, that really doesn't matter to me. I just want you to fence because you like it. And I'm excited you're doing something. So it's fine. But I think that it, it all comes back to that communication and, and talking about it. I think there are coaches out there who promise scholarships, who promise national team, who promise that your child's gonna go to world and the Olympics. And those are false promises. And that's another warning sign I think parents should look for is if you're being promised something, it's not the right place. I can't promise anything because the fact of the matter is the best athlete who has signed the, the pre-letters for scholarships blows her knee. She doesn't have a scholarship anymore. It's gone. The fact of the matter is life can take that away. So for, to promise that it's false, it's a lie. It's not real. Yeah. I, the big takeaway there for me, Jean, is that getting the why from the parents, that's really cool. And that's certainly something I might have a little look at with, with, sporting parents in the schools I'm working at because it, it does shape a lot of their views and values and, and it's a really interesting concept to look at. But we, we're going to wind it down a little bit now, Gene, and we're going to have our quick fire questions at the end. I'm interested now, you leading gym programs, what are your three non-negotiables as a leader? As a leader? Yeah. For me, it comes back to the, the, the never stop learning as a leader the cannot want it more than them as a leader yeah. and the see the whole child. And those are the three things that I try to push, but they're also the three things I require of wherever I'm employed. So whether I'm running a gym program, I'm in a school, whatever it is, I need that buy-in completely. Yeah. Because while the gym program might feel this way, if the school is feeling that when it all costs, then that's not the right environment for me. And I, while yes, I have tried to change things from the inside, I think it's also important to recognize when you need to walk away. Yeah, brilliant, love that. Um, what book are you reading at the moment, Jean? So I'm actually reading the 10th anniversary of Neil uh, Gaiman's American Gods. And the foreword of it is really about several people approached him and told him he had all of the American Gods incorrect it's not you know the previous religious gods it's that sport is america's god and with the current climate and with covid and all of these arguments about why we need baseball back and football back and we need our national teams i think that very much plays into yes perhaps sport truly is the god of america <laughs> and that is kind of the driving driving force at the moment <laughs> and, and last one from us jeep Go on, Alan's favourite question. He always wants to ask you, though. What are the, uh, which three leaders in history or, or three people in history would you love to go out for a meal with? So this is the one that's probably the hardest for me. Um, I would love to go out for a meal with Admiral McRaven. Um, I happen to be a spouse at a unit he was at in North Carolina, and he was a fantastic leader there. 
and having spoken to him, I'd love to talk to him now that he's separate from the military and trying to get, just pick his brain a little bit more about what he may have done differently in a different setting as a leader. Um, a couple other leaders, it's funny because a big part of my degree was based on leaders who failed, how not to lead was it like, and they use several examples in the business world of how not to be a great leader. But I would really like to, to talk to um, Papa Bear Hallis of the Chicago Bears. I know that he is now deceased, but he created this cult-like following with the Chicago Bears. Um, and I would love to just pick his brain about that and know more about his, his leadership style, how he got this buy-in, how the choices that he made created this this following to really what is not a winning sports team, <laughs> which is even more amazing. And those are my two big ones. I think the third leader I would really like to meet with would be within gymnastics, would be um, Vitaly Lukin and just, sorry, excuse me, Valeri Lukin and just how, what his methodologies were because he is someone who has come back from being accused of abuse um, verbally, you know, telling an athlete that she was fat, that she was too heavy, things like that. And he came out publicly and he apologized for it and talked about the lessons that he learned. But having seen his actions, it seems that he very much has changed his style. I would like to talk to him on how that process worked, how being under scrutiny as the, you know, a director of the national team at that point and having all of this come out, how he was able to continue coaching where I think sometimes people run from it. Um, I've got friends who've been accused of some things that were taken out of context and they were just like, I'm done. I'm never coaching again. I want to know how he was able to acknowledge his mistakes, learn from them, move past them and now stay mindful and moving in the right directions. And, and, under the public eye, because it wasn't done quietly. It was very much under camera and how that process worked and really how it affected him as a person. Powerful. Really good three. Cool. We'll be on the Google though, Lewis, won't we? Finding out who they yeah, are. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, there's a couple of those that I haven't heard of before, but, but Gene, as ever, incredibly willing to handle tough conversations and I've thoroughly enjoyed that and I think those conversations need to be happening a little bit more often in clubs and schools um, everywhere. So thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. And You're very, very welcome. As a parent, there's some powerful messages there uh, that, that certainly need addressing across the world of sport. So thank you as a parent that, that we can hear those messages. Yeah, thanks Absolutely. Jean. Um, Guys, search Infinite Leaders Live on, on YouTube and IGTV to find our latest content. And again, you'll find Alan and I on Twitter with our rambles and our opinions. And we're also pleased to announce we're now on all popular podcast platforms, Spotify and Apple Podcasts included, but you'll find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to check out our website, theinfinitelearners.com. Um, and thanks again to Gene, a uh, wonderful guest and, and, and so willing to handle a, a really tough subject. We really appreciate that. And we'll, we'll see you all next time. Cheers, guys. Bye.